Speaking of ways to make money. Uh-oh. I am presently, uh, I'm, I'm living my best life at the moment because I hold in my hand the uh, Jesse Ventura approved Mountain Dew Zero Sugar Baja Blanche. <laughs> so I'm, I'm living the gimmick this evening and I'm not drinking my calories. So I have lived up to the entire body mantra. There you go. And speaking of bodies, do I have some news for you? Uh, as of July the 13th, 2023, approximately 40 human body parts were found in the home of a Kentucky man who the FBI says was part of a multi-state scheme to buy and sell human remains over Facebook. And I thought that the Facebook marketplace could do nothing for me. And now, if I am angling to get a human skull, I know who to reach out to. Yeah. So, does this man work in a funeral home and is just taking the parts? Because it doesn't sound like he's been accused of, like, serial killing. Well, uh, so the scheme, reported by McClatchy News in June, God bless Kentucky, uh, led to the initial <laughs> arrest of six people. They included a mortuary worker in Little Rock, there Arkansas. We go. There it is. And the manager of a morgue at Harvard Medical School. Oh. Oh, this goes when, all the way to the top. When you said, and the manager of a, and then started with an M, I was almost sure you were going to be like, and the manager of a McDonald's. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this took a interesting oh, twist. Um, they know how if to we recycle looking for, their meat. If we were looking for the cadavers of neighborhood cats, then maybe a McDonald's manager. But no, these are human body parts. Uh, but uh, they might be coming to your house, apparently. So you you have a future ahead of you for that crawl space in the basement. But uh, some of the body parts stolen from morgues in Massachusetts and Arkansas ended up in the Mount Washington, Kentucky home, officials said. Uh, The Kentucky man, according to the FBI, used the pseudonym William Burke on Facebook. Uh, Burke was a serial killer in the 1800s in Scotland and sold victims' bodies to an influential lecturer, federal authorities say. Uh, Long story short, too late, this person also had a large quantity of firearms in the house, Mm. presumably to either ensure that he was a able to get body parts one way or the other but uh you know just uh, uh this is the state that we are in as a society where folks are selling human remains on social networks well technically we're not <sighs> in uh you know kentucky so we're that's not the state that we are in well i mean you're married <laughs> to somebody who <laughs> used to be Fuck, you're right so well uh-huh. <laughs> it was nice I'd knowing love to y'all fly on the wall for that first conversation when the guy's going to the mortuary worker and like hey man so uh got any spare ever, parts yeah you got any uh spare parts just <laughs> lying around i man do i have a business proposition for you do you know you're just leaving money on the table right now Indeed. i can yep. get you a 12 and a half percent while there's a whole corpse like just sitting on a table next to him so if you're, you're leaving were, money on the table if, come on if you were to remove the feet from this body and send it into a package that is moving in a westerly direction at 40 miles an hour from a train from pennsylvania how much money right. can you save can get by just taking a 401k on each one of these shins <laughs> oh man uh but uh in any event uh i have a question related to that you know who would have made a killing with a cadaver ring back in the day pun intended uh jack the ripper i was, oh, I was gonna say it too that was gonna be the guess that's so funny yes indeed yeah and that leads us into me exclaiming by the eternal behold, behold. it is the disinformed podcast i'm shane and i'm doc and i'm michael 
And we are going to be getting a little dirty this week, but not in the ways that you would expect, Ooh, I assure you. I Let like me hit teased. another Baja Blast right here. Mm. I'm going to need lots of lubrication this evening, kids, because what we usually do on this show is delve into random esoteric nonsense, and in the course of explaining it to one another, we lie. I'm looking at the camera because that's a professional thing to do. But, uh, you know, it is incumbent <laughs> on the co-hosts listening to ferret out the fact from fiction as they listen, that is the general conceit of the show but even if they don't get it i assure you we'll have a denouement at the end of the show we explain what we lied about and why and why it was funny or not it all depends on you the listener and whether your taste is decent or atrocious exactly the listener they don't care where i'm looking (laughs) well i mean they might in in the next few weeks we'll figure that one out as we go but uh, this evening, friends, we are going to be talking about something which I just found out about myself fairly recently, uh, and so I had to dig a little deeper. We are going to be discussing the diary of Jack the Ripper. What? Yes, a diary, indeed. Ooh, okay. And not a journal. Yes. How no, very he modern was... of him. Uh, he didn't have a vision board, as far as I'm aware, but uh, the Jews will not be blamed for nothing, from my understanding. So, uh, this evening, I have four lies for you, friends. I'm going to take it easy. Uh, I do not guarantee that they are of hyper quality, because, as I said, this occurred in a very extreme and frenzied flight of trying to write this uh, yesterday, after I had finished with work and an interview. So, I don't know where my head was at. We'll all find out together. But... Are you ready? As long as it's not in a box being shipped across via eBay, I think or, it's I mean, okay. As long as it's, I could make some money. As long as it's not a JAT a GPT lie, then I feel like we're JAT? okay. JAT? A JAT? JAT? G- GPT BBQ. Uh, I am going to be the one host on this show who does not utilize chat gpt at any point over the course of recording oh, look at this purist over here he's uh-huh. better than yeah. us huh hmm. yes i use reputable sources like wikipedia ah! <laughs> <laughs> no i have a significant man i had to go through like nine or ten different resources to get this paltry amount of nonsense but i found one or two that were actually really fantastic that helped flush this out so okay. get excited i'm excited tenting even <laughs> hand check can't do it <laughs> he refuses he his contract says he doesn't have to hand check i have to hold my nipples while i speak otherwise you know people will get wounded but uh <laughs> diamond cutters baby <laughs> Ooh, ddp <laughs> Self high five. <laughs> there are few monikers in the whole of human history, and that's W H O L E, thank you, Michael, uh, that inspired the dread, revulsion, and curiosity which Jack the Ripper elicits. This unidentified serial killer was active in and around the impoverished Whitechapel district of London, England, in 1888, with attacks ascribed to assailants typically involving women working as prostitutes in the slums of the East End of London, uh, or shall I say sex workers, to keep us above board here, lest someone at me. I assure you there's going to be a lot more linguistic peril uh, through the course of this episode. There's some crazy people to deal with. Uh Uh-oh. But uh, in the killings... 
It's widely believed to be perpetrated by the Ripper. The victim's throats were cut prior to abdominal mutilations of increasing severity. That's going to be as gory as I'm going to get for the time being. I'm assuming that everyone on the call is fairly familiar with Jack the Ripper, at least the canonical five. He likes to rip. Letter rip. Beyblade. (laughs) Sorry. Press F to pay respects, apparently. Yes, there you go. Uh, the removal of some internal organs from at least three of the victims led to speculation that he was starting a group on Facebook to sell the materials to the highest bidder. No, no, no. Okay. Led to speculation. Is that bullshit? I don't, I don't recall him seeing that he stole. I thought he just mutilated. On Facebook? Oh, yes. No, they didn't. That wasn't actually. No. <laughs> well, no, sorry. Back then it, it, was, it was on MySpace. It was Friendster back then. No, no, no. MySpace was invented around the, you know, World War II. It was Friendster. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I would love to see the Friendster profile of Mary Kelly. But, uh, okay. Uh, yes, internal organs were in fact removed from several victims. And, and, uh, parts of one of the internal organs were sent along with a letter, which is the From Hell letter, which oh, is the famed okay. one, which Alan Moore's book is named after. But, uh, in any event, here we go. So the removal of internal organs from at least three of the victims led to speculation that their killer had some anatomical or surgical knowledge. And rumors that the murders were connected intensified in September and October of 1888, and numerous letters were received by media outlets and Scotland Yard from individuals purporting to be the murderer. Uh, And there were a lot. So difficult to uh, separate the wheat and chaff there. Wasn't there one fellow, too, like as he was getting hung and like the just before the gallow dropped or something like that said, I'm Jack, and then... (laughs) I'm jacking it. <laughs> just before I'm hung just before that gallow jumped. It. I'm hung and I'm jacking. <laughs> what a way to go. What a way to go. Uh, that's the ripper, definitely. Oh man, uh, he let it rip. Yikes. I'm not gonna stop doing that see, joke. I'm sorry. Oh, well, see, that's even better because I'm thinking of like Hulk Hogan's no holds barred character, which was rip. <laughs> or this is it. There's a rip em. Let him rip. Yes. If you haven't seen No Holds Barred, Michael, you so of anybody good. would adore that movie. Ooh, okay. Is there a trailer for it? We might have Ti- to. Yes. Okay. I know what we're doing next, then. He winds up in a match with Tiny uh, Alton Lister, uh, who is the gentleman with a lazy eye, as featured in Jackie Brown as one of the enforcers. But uh, he is Zeus. And uh, Zeus actually became a character on WWF television afterward and had a series of match with Randy Savage as his tag team partner against Hogan and a cavalcade of other stars. And if you can imagine, there are actually promos of Randy Savage doing a promo standing next to Zeus that are some of the best must-see television that wrestling (laughs) has ever produced, I assure you. He points to his lazy eyes and says, This is the eye of the madness. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. Yeah, I'm interested. Yes, I wish to see this. Plenty of fodder left for that. Oh, All right. Beautiful. The murderers, of course, have never been solved to date unless something very dramatic happened in the last 24 hours that I was not aware of. And the legends surrounding these crimes have become an amalgam of historical research, folklore, and pseudo-history, capturing public imagination to the present day. So, 
In an era devoid of modern methods of detection, in point of fact, fingerprinting was not employed in any organized fashion until 1892, rising to prominence in the Scotland Yard organization owing to the notoriety the department received for the Ripper murders. Uh, this sadistic killing spree stymied authorities, horrified the public, and titillated the press, serving as a template for both masochistic acts of future madmen as well as the manipulation of the masses by the media. Was the fingerprint Doc, stuff BS? Well, you have to be a little more specific yeah. than saying, was the fingerprint guess, well, stuff well, BS? Was it, in, was it used was it as a, a method of catching crime or criminals that early on? Prior... Um, 1892 yes but by scotland yard and all that like the the bit that followed that see now you're just wiggling stuff out here no No. it was not actually scotland yard no i Uh, i I made the mistake then of because i was trying to not just interject and cut you off in your flow so i was mm -hmm. waiting until the end of the sentence next time i'll just chime in and be like this part right here right here just hit the bullshit button (laughs) (laughs) bullshit detected (laughs) Yikes. Um, but no. Fingerprinting actually originated in Buenos Aires, Argentina in 1892, uh, employed by Inspector Eduardo Alvarez, uh, who made the first criminal fingerprint identification. He was able to identify Francisca Rojas, a woman who murdered her two sons and cut her own throat in an attempt to place blame on another individual. But yes, Damn. so it they had even started. So you're talking about crimes taking place <laughs> in 1888. They didn't even start using fingerprinting until later on. So mm. this is how far back we are. Yeah. Needless to say, consequently, for the subsequent 130 years, the quest to identify Britain's most iconic serial killer has transfixed scores of historians, law enforcement officials, psychologists, podcasters, and amateur sleuths the world over. To the extent that an umbrella term was coined for those who dedicated themselves to the study of these crimes and their possible perpetrator, Ripperologists. I don't know why that just didn't hit as hard as I expected it to. I I, I expect to get like all giddy and everything from the word. But what were you expecting? I have no idea. I was like expecting it to just like, I I don't know, give me a bunch of endorphins or something like. Did you want him to be called Jack Offs or something? (laughs) That would have been good. Jackologists. You (laughs) don't know Jack. Jack. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm a Jack Off from like way back. (laughs) I've been jacking off since before you were born. Man, I first became a jack-off in high school. How about you tell me how it happens? I was there. (laughs) I was swimming up out of the channel. I was in the Thames. I saw those murders take place. I was was, was present. Okay, this brings us inexorably to the extraordinarily divisive topic of this evening's episode. A diary purportedly belonging to Jack the Ripper, which was made public in 1992. Now, not oh, 98, so we don't have to worry yeah. about uh, mankind taking a plum. But That late? That's crazy. <laughs> that late? I mean, uh, 1992, yes. yeah. A hundred years? Well, yeah. there was further publication regarding this book as uh, late as uh, 2017, as a matter of stern fact. So when you say further publication, what do you mean? Like additional entries that were missing? They are missing? still chatting about it to this day. So oh. there's debate that has been taking place. It for a significant amount of time. But 
The monograph itself, detailing the alleged actions and crimes of its author over a period of several months, takes credit for the slaying of the five victims most commonly credited to the Ripper, as well as two other murders which have to date not been historically identified. It also illustrates the state of mind of the killer during the spree, providing motive for the murders. I will tell you, having sampled a good portion of it, it is not incredibly well written. Hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> the disjointed uh, if ravings. you've read any of... Well, also, the I mean, the letters were not exactly the most eloquent thing on the planet either, and it is in a parlance that is several degrees removed from our own, but still... Uh, the diaries. Well, we should just be happy we can read it. I mean, if the man was truly a doctor, we all know how doctor's handwriting is. Indeed. Good point, yes. Self-deprecation or self-defecation, depending <laughs> upon your references. But, uh, so... <laughs> he hasn't made that joke tonight. Yet? Yes, yes, yes. That is true. We'll see. There was naturally some feces around the crime scene, as you would expect, because people's intestines were being removed, but what are you going to do? So... The diary was first introduced to the world by Michael Barrett. Great name. An un- well, Disagreed. Gets better. Uh, an unemployed former scrap metal dealer from Liverpool who initially claimed he received it from a now deceased friend, Tony Devereaux, which to me sounds a little better than Michael Barrett, personally. Especially In involved with all this stuff. Tony Devereaux, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds uh-huh. like that's his like one thing in life. Is the name bullshit? No. Tony Devereaux? Okay. Or Michael no, Bennett? Tony Devereaux is not also not bullshit. Okay, no. Both enough. of these are... Now, Tony Devereaux may be a contrived individual, depending upon yeah. how this plays out, but who knows? Oh, I yeah. just thought we but were like pausing and you were like, line. yeah, it's a great name and all that. And I was like, wait a second. No, no, I'm not leaning <laughs> into it. I, I'm just thinking like Michael Barrett sounds like, you know, he sounds like somebody who would be talking to you like this and getting chips in a shop. And uh, Tony Devereaux sounds as though he was uh, serving under Prime Minister Blair. Honestly, that first ago. accent was like almost a spot-on Luther impersonation, like uh, Idris, Idris Elba, Luther. Like, well, spot-on. I mean, uh, I, I, I won't write home about that. I assure you, but uh, I love me some Idris Elba. I just what a man can't forgive him. Can't forgive him for the Dark Tower. Also but, true. Uh, what are we gonna Ooh. okay? So. When Barrett's claims began... Uh, now, if you didn't catch the end of that line, he claimed that Tony just gave it to him whilst the two of them were in a pub. Oh, just... Here, just buddy, I got some... Up, strolled up and handed it to him. You ever I heard mean, of Jack can... the Ripper? I got his journal. Uh-huh. I mean, I could picture that. Rolls up the uh, Michael's, you know, a couple beers in, and he's like, Michael, I got this crazy shit you gotta see. He just throws the book on the table, or on the, on the bar table. I, I don't speak British. He throws well, it on the table... And if you I have a famous shit. if I have a famous killer's diary, the first person I think I need to get this in the hands of is the scrap metal worker. Hell yeah! Uh-huh. <laughs> he, he already he, he's one half away from scrapbooking. So oh, it, it, I like it. Just it just makes all it makes all the sense. I like, well done. I'm liking it. We're connecting the dots. I need to get one of those boards there with the red yarn going across. Like it's all coming together. It goes all the way to the top. <laughs> I hope not. Okay, so uh, it rolls up. He's having a he's having a piss in a boozer and says, "Hey, Michael, I've got this thing for you. Let me have a Guinness and I'll hand it over to you." In any event, when Barrett's claims began to receive greater scrutiny, the story morphed into a convoluted slurry of justification and obfuscation, wherein Barrett's wife Anne, oh. formerly Anne Graham, 
which anagram is fantastic. Mm. But uh, <laughs> now Ann Barrett claimed that the diary was a family heirloom that had been handed down through generations. She claimed it had been in her family as long as she could remember. Which that doesn't really do a whole hell of a lot to prove the validity of the claim. Well, it depends on how Her... much she drinks in a given day. It could be uh-huh. ten minutes ago. It could be five hours ago. Who knows? Conceivably, yeah. not, you never know. Not to jump the gun here, but at any point, like you know, especially with the advancements of technology as as we get closer to modern era, does anybody like do any testing on the ink or on the Hang that in. Okay, I, I I know what I'm doing. God damn it. It's just <laughs> nobody questioned it at I will, all. They I took be, it all at face value immediately. Yes, I will be presenting to you <laughs> the facts of the diary of Jack the Ripper. Usually, what I do on these shows. What? I don't know if you know this or not, but he's used yes, to my uh, nonsensical ramblings, so he I has thought it to was get a fair question. He could like God, literally what damn. he said was, "Yeah, we'll get there." Okay, cool. Because what if he said no? I'd be like, "Oh, that's fascinating. I wonder why they never did it." <laughs> <laughs> they just took it at face value. This anagram, she she knows what she's talking about. Like, well, she or just, somebody could have we, suggested it, but the con people could be like, "No, sorry, we can't." It's you know, blah blah blah. I, could be in I just love in the course of presenting an episode. I'm here at the handshake, and you're already like, "Are we come already?" <laughs> he doesn't know how to. He doesn't know how to pre, uh, pregame. Uh, <laughs> you you ejaculate, and then you want to make out. So okay, usually explaining at the same time. So sorry. All right. So uh, she elected to have Devereaux present the book to her husband because Michael apparently was nursing literary aspirations, which she hoped the diary's notorious contents could catalyze into a career. Uh, uh, yeah, if you're okay. not confused yet, wait, it gets better. So I want my husband to be a better writer, so I'm going to have his friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm an artist. When explaining why she didn't simply give the book to her husband and explain her own connections to it, and then indicates that its affiliations with her family would lead Michael to speak with her father about it, and as it stood, the relations between the two men were strained. Plot twist. This scrap metal worker later goes on to write, My Immortal. (laughs) No. Plot twist. The scrap worker is her father. (laughs) Ew. Uh, okay, so roll tide. It's also the most British thing ever. It's like, oh, they're not speaking at the moment. I, I don't want him to reach out to my father. Daddy would be upset. Uh, <laughs> Christ. All right. So the book, subsequently published as the Diary of Jack the Ripper, go figure, in 1993, has been a source of considerable controversy ever since. Few experts give it any credence. There. That's just for you, Thank Micah. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> Micah. 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 Ah, no credits, oh, Micah. <laughs> Going Micah in now, the British is fucking me up. I got to turn into like a South Park character. <laughs> so, few experts give it any credence whatsoever, with most scholars immediately dismissing it as a hoax. So, we'll get to the testing, though, just so you know. There were, however, notable exceptions who were open to the possibility that it might be genuine. Debate was often heated, and one writer notes that the saga of the diary is confusing, complicated, and inescapably torturous. <laughs> uh, so, one of the primary causes of consternation surrounds the purported owner of the diary, because, of course, if you're going to claim to have been Jack the Ripper and detail your crimes, folks might be curious as to who you are. 
Now, the book is most commonly believed to have belonged to James Maybrick, a Liverpudlian cotton merchant who just so happened to have died under suspicious circumstances himself in 1889. Mm. However... Maybrick's life and demise were both mired in controversy long before he was proposed as a possible suspect in the Ripper killings. Born in Liverpool, as I indicated, Merseyside, at the time, a Lancashire, uh, to William Maybrick, an engraver, and his wife Susanna, James was named after a brother who had died the year prior to his own birth and was Oof. the third of the Maybrick's seven sons. I thought you were going to say that that was... The third child named after that. It was all James. It's, it's just Michael James. all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, you got you It's like our podcast, bunch. yes. That's, uh, a, that's pretty rough, like naming it after the deceased brother. It's like, we really love that name. It's too bad that he died. Ah, screw it. Just name the next one that. <laughs> Use it again. It's not like it's snake bit or anything. Yeah, the other guy's going to take advantage of it. I mean, He's it's a practically dead. a brand new name. It was only used for a couple months. <laughs> it's just a little bit rusty. You know, you buff out the edges. You, well, you know, and get we already got got all out. the signs made we got the crib engraved with the name i was and gonna everything. say difficulty is is that it's still on the headstone so i mean you know hey we can bury them both in the same plot we'll just save money that yeah! way yeah kill <laughs> two birds with one stone kill two james two with babies. one stone yes kill two names with one stone either way mm. but uh all right so Maybrick's cotton trading business required him to... Now, we're lurching forward dramatically from his birth, because I don't care to detail his entire you know, existence blow by blow. He but briefly cotton, got into like a body part selling business in his youth, and... Wait. Well, oh, uh, no. <laughs> so, uh, Maybrick's cotton trading business... Oh, he was trading body parts. Uh, we'll get into that. But uh, the business re required him to travel regularly to the United States. Oh, the colonies, as it were. Consequently, in 1871, he settled in Norfolk, Virginia. Hey, that's 20 minutes away. I can cross the tunnel and be in Norfolk right now. And he could cross the Thames and, you know, be in your basement. He's my uh, neighbor. Indeed. <laughs> uh, and so he established a branch of his company there. During his time in America, he contracted malaria, which is very popular in Virginia, from what I understand, which was treated at the time with a medication containing arsenic as a consequence yeah. he would remain addicted to the drug for the rest of his life is this bullshit like no interesting they treated his malaria with an arsenic and then, tonic and then basically. he's addicted to arsenic He's addicted to arsenic. No for the rest fooling. of his life, which for the probably rest of his wouldn't life. be terribly would have long been the if next you're addicted. Five minutes. <laughs> well, uh, wait. <laughs> so, in any event, an interesting aside on top of all of this other nonsense is that Maybrick is purported to have conducted business in 1879 with an aspiring young entrepreneur by the name of Herman Mudgett later known by an alias of Dr. Henry Howard Holmes, oh. selling some 28 bales of cotton to aid the latter in the establishment of a three-story boarding house in Chicago, Illinois. Very nice. On the subject of cadaver selling, Mr. Holmes was also quite proficient at the practice. It's, it's so interesting, just the little stories that immediately pop in your head. So, like, Aside from even that, when you said earlier, like his business had him, you know, going to the States quite often, mm -hmm. like in modern times, you know, okay, you know, if my business takes me to England quite often, it just means that I'm hopping a lot of flights. 
right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, mildly inconvenienced, but very easy. But right. just the idea of like business taking you to the States quite often at that time, that'd be like a pain in the ass, horrendous, horrific journey every time, mm-hmm. just back and forth. Like it's, you know, just all the stories that just go in there, just, you know, like a one liner is like weeks at a time of this guy's life just being awful. Yep. And furthermore, it's like they're not great conditions because most of those liners, you have a wealth of people who are basically all defecating into just a giant space in the ship. And when that starts to overflow, they're just scooping it overboard. Like it's you're you've got people being terribly nauseous all around you. It's just not a great environment. And to do that repeatedly. Exactly. No wonder I ended up just deciding to stay in Norfolk. I, you know, two trips and I'd be like, screw it. I'm staying in the States. Well, uh, you know, we'll continue that on. But then what's even funnier is so H.H. Uh, H. Holmes is also considered to be uh, another suspect for Jack the Ripper because huh. the uh, Holmes killings in America did not take place until after the Ripper killings had stopped. So the bulk of H.H. H. Holmes killings started in 1889, I believe, uh, which is after the Ripper killings had stopped canonically. So there's a bunch of weird confluence here. In any event, Maybrick then returned to Britain in March of 1880. So he was there for a little bit, and he's floating back over. During the journey, he was introduced to Florence, or Flory, Elizabeth Chandler, the daughter of a banker from Mobile, Alabama. A relationship quickly blossomed between the... (laughs) (laughs) I thought Michael was going to say it, but he didn't. The, hey, there was you know, no incense. They are clearly from different bloodlines. There, there's no roll tie incense. here. Incense. <laughs> yes. Yeah, incense I can't smell anything. All right. Uh, in any event, <laughs> a relationship quickly blossomed between the two, despite their difference in ages, which is startling, because he was 42 and she was 18. And by July of 1881, they were wed. The couple went on to have two children, a son, James Chandler, or Bobo. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Oh, that was his moniker. Ah, oh, Bobo, what are you going to do? Good old Bobo Maybrick. Now, that's a wrestling name, if oh, I have yeah. ever heard yes, one. Yes, for sure. Uh, he was born in 1882, and then a daughter, Gladys Evelyn, who was born in 1886. No fun nickname for Gladdy, unfortunately. Now, Maybrick continued to divide his time between America and the UK in support of his business going forward, which is believed to have significantly strained his marriage, as you would expect. Mm. It's alleged that he carried on affairs with an array of mistresses, hence the body part exchange. Mm. Just it was, you know, they were a bit more lively than desiccated. Uh Uh, James' infidelities were so pervasive that he was actually later discovered to have had a common law wife. One Sarah Ann Robinson, while all, or Robertson, while also married to Florence. Uh, this rumor was seemingly confirmed by her stepfather's will, which listed her as Sarah Ann Maybrick, wife of James. Oh, Ooh, awkward. So after having spent two years living in America, James and Florence then again returned to Liverpool, setting up a home at Battlecrease House on the banks of the Mercy. So he left Sarah behind. Sarah. Or whoever the... Oh, oh, yes, the common-law wife. I'm sure he was probably giving the same story, essentially. Yeah, just saying, going like, out oh, on gotta go back for business. Um, and gotta go I... pick up cigarettes. Come on, there, uh, 
there's not a significant amount of detail in a lot of these things to discuss his general life because he wasn't really someone who was a suspect of great interest for a while until we get to what I'm building into. But I don't know whether or not he was leaving her in the UK and then coming back over if she was with him every time. But it sounds like the trips were frequent enough that maybe she came a couple times. Maybe she didn't. Sometimes she didn't come at all, baby. <laughs> oh, um, no. But <laughs> knew that was so. coming. <laughs> or not. Ooh, zing. <laughs> but uh, James Maybrook's fortunes, however, had diminished pretty significantly, and good old Florence had yet to inherit hers from Alabama. So despite this, she continued to spend lavishly and lived in fear of her husband's wrath. By this time, however, she was also the mother of two young children whom Maybrook made very little allowance for. So when she finally discovered in 1888 that her husband was supporting a mistress and second family, no less, to the tune of 100 pounds a year, she became incensed. I wonder how she found out. Whew. Uh, that's a terrifying thought. But uh, we'll find out what happened afterwards. But Maybrick was now 50 years old and a drug-addicted hypochondriac. No doubt the young Florence felt she was entitled to a little happiness and embarked upon her own affair with an acquaintance of her husband, another cottonmonger by the name of Alfred Beerley. This all culminated in a comically tragic string of events that would end in James Maybrook's death. In early April 1889, the couple were still living under the same roof when Florence visited a local chemist and bought some flypapers. Now, that is, you know, your your common insect attractants. Oh. Okay. When she got home, she soaked them in water, releasing an arsenic substance. Later, she claimed that she was preparing a tonic for her skin, which is a perfectly reasonable explanation at a time when women often used arsenic to improve their complexion. On the 27th of April, James Maybrick fell seriously ill after ingesting a tonic containing arsenic and strychnine, Ooh. which was, of course, not an unusual practice, as we've mentioned, given that he was a fucking arsenic-addicted idiot, <laughs> and, uh, given his earlier bout with malaria. <laughs> Taking to his bed, James was diagnosed with severe dyspepsia. Uh, so much Pepsi. worse than dyscochia. I know, you gotta get the caffeine free, really. I mean, otherwise, you're, you're just begging the for it. The caffeine withdrawals are terrible. I can understand why you'd be bedridden. I've, I've, I've experienced that. It's not fun. I was just thinking of the ulcers, but, uh. Oh, also. In any true, event. Yeah. When his condition worsened, nurses were employed to care for him while he was being treated with a cyanide-based medication. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, leave like, it to the 1800s. The Arsenic, strychnine, cyanide. The water remembers. We've learned this. The, like, you indeed. treat like with like. So. The, uh, the joys of the 19th century. Better living through chemistry, indeed. <laughs> but on the 8th of May, Florence Maybrick asked one of her servants to deliver a letter to Alfred Beerley, or Brearley. Uh, he had written to her the previous day to advise her he was leaving the country. Like you do. Uh, Florence begged to see her lover one more time. Unfortunately, sorry, I, I got a little too Britney Spears on that, that delivery there. Hit me, baby. Uh, unfortunately, the letter didn't reach him. It was intercepted by the nanny, Alice Yap, which oh, man, these names what a are yap. delightful. Yap Shut that yap. Flushing girl from Flushing? Or... Uh, indeed. <laughs> Yipes. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. <laughs> 
Uh, the note was passed, of course, then to Maybrick's brother, Edwin, who was, and then to the head of the family, Michael. Later, on May 9th, Florence asked her husband's nurse to leave his room while she attended to him. When the suspicious nurse refused, Florence removed a bottle of tonic from the nightstand, Valentine's meat juice, by the way, <laughs> and took it into the nearby washroom. Valentine was definitely jacking it. <laughs> With that Indeed. meat juice. He's mm -hmm. got his meat juice for you. I just don't want to know what was happening at the apothecary. Uh, terrible, terrible things when you can market Valentine's meat juice. And deliver that with a straight face. It always took like 10 minutes to get that refill. I never understood why. That's pretty it good turnover time. It was always hot time. fresh. <laughs> he was the a professional. Little teasers. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So dehydrated, um, too. Yeah, well, if only they'd gotten Jack involved. This meat juice is so salty. When she returned, she surreptitiously, syrup, there, there's a word to wrap my tongue oh, around, she surreptitiously replaced the bottle next to Maybrook's bed, and then attempted to cow the nurse into leaving the room by first exposing, and then manipulating James's genitals. As you do. <sighs> like the you man's do. got needs. He could so be dying of strychnine poisoning, uh -huh. but... That's how you get the meat juice. Yeah. Uh, when this also failed to avert the nurse's gaze, Florence just abruptly exited the room. So well, let's I got whip, the, whip the bedding up, get a little uh, rub and tug, yeah, and it's like, like oh, she's still like looking. This? All right, the fine, nurse I'm is leave. like, okay, continue. I'm watching. Like, Light the cigarette. Straight face. Yeah. Go on. Like, all right. Not the great, not the best technique. I've seen better at a retirement home down the street, but you know, keep going. She's like, you're supposed to be giving him the meat juice, not taking it from him, love. <laughs> In any event, believing the bottle to have been tampered with, as you would expect, hmm. the nurse handed it to Maybrick's brothers. When it was examined later, it was found to contain half a grain of arsenic. Florence uh, then claimed later that the arsenic-addicted husband of hers had begged her to add the drug to the tonic. So he's in there, he's jonesing for a fix, and so she's just trying to help him, you know, get over the hump, as, as it were. More ways than one. Indeed. The following day, James's brother, Michael Maybrick, saw Florence decant her husband's medicine into another larger bottle. When he confronted her, she claimed that the smaller bottle contained sediment and the medicine couldn't be shaken properly. <laughs> it's just Doubt. so many metaphors. Oh, yes. man. Uh, upon later analysis, the fluid contained nothing suspicious. Uh, the same day, the nurse claimed to hear James Maybrick complain to his wife, You've given me the wrong medicine again. Like, I'm sorry, Daddy, let me just, you know, whip the bedding up again. Uh, <laughs> oh, the that's Maybrick the right brothers... medicine. <laughs> 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 I've been waiting all day for the meat juice. Come on, love. <laughs> Uh, when I get that feeling, I need some sexual healing. Get your sticks riled up, grab a stick of juicy fruit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the taste is going to move you. The Maybrick brothers then confronted Florence, accusing her of attempting to poison their brother and effectively placing her under house arrest. With the aid of the servants, they then searched the house for arsenic and found enough to kill 50 men. There you now, go. again, not shocking when the individual living in the home is an arsenic addict. So 
context is really important when qualifying this story for other people, but it's, it's, in any event. It's still so hard for me to believe that he is an arsenic addict, and after all this, I, I just, I need the verification. Is the fact that he's an arsenic addict bullshit? That No, it is not bullshit. He was an arsenic addict. I, I don't, okay. I know. I, again, there's different times. You, you, <laughs> What's even funnier is so we were talking about this is like he wouldn't have lived very long. Is this he was administered that in 1871. This is now 1889 and he's still taking it. It's not so, straight arsenic. It's like some sort of no, compound it's involving diluted, yeah. obviously. Yeah, well, yes, yes, but it's yeah, still but it's some sort of compound involving arsenic. But I mean Christ, people were taking laudanum at this point. So yeah, I mean it's like I there's mean, no end to the, you know, chemicals that people would put in their oh, bodies yeah, yeah, just yeah. That's why yeah, I was it's, like, he's not taking straight arsenic, like the stuff diluted no. from like apple seeds, but it involves Correct. arsenic, which is understandable. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. And I just of course, the water dilutes it. it. It just remembers it. Because it remembers it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Like, here's like. Uh, in any event, this, it keeps getting more intriguing. This story is mind boggling. So it's like, again, we haven't even talked about the diary yet. This is just the, the circumstances of the man's life. Uh, the amount that Florence had obtained from the flypapers was minuscule by comparison to what was in the house. So obviously that's not how she was getting it. Uh, on the 11th of May, 1889, James Maybrick died. So he was cresting into all of this, was not feeling well, kept asking and insisting he needed to get arsenic medication, and then eventually succumbed. So Rip. with... Er. Yes. Van Winkle. Uh... As with all suspicious or unexplained deaths, an inquest was held. The postmortem had discovered an amount of arsenic in Maybrook's body, but not enough to kill him. Oh. Now, the cause of death was clearly poisoning, but how and when the fatal dose had been administered was undetermined. But again, he's also receiving cyanide and in his other medication. Right? So, yes. Yeah. So it's like. Just take your pick. It's a roulette <laughs> wheel of what might have killed this motherfucker at this point. And well, and it could have just been time. Like even if the that single dosage wasn't enough to knock mm-hmm. him out, just the cumulative effect of it all. Exactly. So, interestingly, the inquest was conducted by a close acquaintance of Maybrick, who went on to take over the lease of Battle Creek House after uh, his wife was taken into custody. The inquest did not consider that Maybrook's death was a consequence of his long-term drug-taking and simply returned a verdict of murder. On the 18th of May, Florence was arrested and incarcerated in Walton Jail, a bleak Victorian prison. Are there no workhouses? Uh, There are those who believe that she should have been acquitted, 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 because she was innocent. For some reason, my allergies are killing me today, so my, I'm speaking through a nose that is just completely closed off. So I apologize that I am forcing things into my nostrils. Uh, in any event, folks believe she should have been acquitted immediately because she was innocent, and her husband's addictions had simply caught up with him and delivered him to his death. This is modern people, or back then people were sticking back up for her? Back then, oh, okay. people were sticking up for her, even. <laughs> and again, this is a 50-year-old man who has got a young and, and doting daughter, you know, a young trophy wife in the parlance of our times. Um, and, of course, others would feel that even if she was guilty, she did the world a service in the fact that the man she killed was really Jack the Ripper. Now, granted, this is other people speaking, and this is modern conjecture, of course. More on that in a moment. But the courts, however, were exceedingly quick 
to condemn Florence, and here is the most interesting facet of this whole story for my perspective. Most interesting? Oh, okay. The trial of Florence Maybrook took place at Liverpool's St. George Hall and was widely reported on both sides of the Atlantic. The young woman was represented by an eminent barrister, Sir Charles Russell. Nevertheless, the trial was severely flawed. The all-male jury was composed of business acquaintances of James Maybrick. Oh. And furthermore, was conducted by a judge who was, uh, let's just say, didn't have the best decorum. Uh, Within two years of conducting the trial, Judge James Fitzjames Stephen, James Fitzjames Stephen, that that's Bizarre his name. Man, that is his name. James Fitzjames Stevens of House James and Stevens. Oh my God! Uh, under the dictionary, in re- you know near redundant, it says he redundant. Uh, he succumbed to mental illness. So you can imagine the downhill run that was occurring with uh, mm-hmm. Mister Stephen here. From the outset, the judge was clearly biased against Florence Maybrick, and in his summing up, stated that she was guilty of adultery, and subsequently was effectively a murderess anyway. So if you are willing to step out on your husband, you're obviously willing to commit murder. Because you're killing the bonds, the sacred bonds of marriage. (laughs) Now Florence was found guilty, and subsequently sentenced to death. Oh, Not shocking. Given the jury and the judge, Oof. is the a, was the jury actually comprised of his business associates? Yes, and they're all male. Yes. Well, yeah, that makes sense for the time. Uh huh. So, who said what kind of business? Even more startling, though, a public outcry followed immediately, with many realizing that the young woman had not received a fair trial. Oh, that's good. judged upon her morals rather than her actual guilt. Rather, eventually. <laughs> In a bid to assuage the outcry, the Home Secretary commuted her sentence to life, and I think this was in two weeks of her being condemned initially, uh, deciding that it was impossible to tell if Florence had given her husband the fatal dose of arsenic. Even this decision proved contentious, with Queen Victoria herself complaining that it was dreadful that so wicked a woman should escape by a mere legal quibble. Is this quote bullshit? No. Plot thickens. Uh. In the furor that followed the trial, Florence was seen as a martyr by two groups, the supporters of the women's rights movement and those who campaigned for a court of appeal in Great Britain. The first of these saw her as a victim of a male-dominated legal system, and the second saw her as a prime example of injustice which the British legal system, as it stood then, was unable to rectify. The Women's International Maybrick Society, and yes, that is their actual name, even enlisted the support of three U.S. presidents, but to no avail. She was an American citizen, of course, anyway. Oh, Naturally right, yeah. speaking. Yes, yeah. From Mobile, uh, Alabama. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Because unbeknownst to them, Queen Victoria had taken an active interest in the case and specifically believed Florence to be guilty. Now, if you've read any of the literature regarding Jack the Ripper, there is a significant amount of suspicion that she, Queen Victoria specifically, set up all of these murders to obfuscate the fact that her son was out and fathering children with prostitutes. There is a significant amount of energy and effort put into the fact that this was an attempt by the crown to cover up Prince 
Philip, I believe, his little philandering nonsense. Mm. So there's a large portion of this that now we're just throwing Queen Victoria into everything. And people think Hunter Biden's bad. Indeed. <laughs> I'd like to see Queen Victoria's laptop. Uh, <laughs> or her dick pic. Okay. <laughs> It would be a spotted dick, I will tell you that much. Delicious. Uh, indeed. So, until the queen died, there was no possibility of her release from prison. Although, she was then set free soon after Queen Victoria passed. The legal problems raised by the Maybrook trial centered on the summing up of the judge, Mr. Justice Fitzjames Stevens. <laughs> In its latter stages, this became little more than a tirade of moralizing generalizations that dwelt on Florence's admitted adultery, because she was not shamed by the fact that she's saying, listen, my philandering fuckhead of a husband has another wife. I had one lover, and, and you know, that for a mere slight of time anyway. But, uh, of course, as we learned, Fitzjames Stevens specifically said that a woman capable of committing the sin of adultery is just as likely to commit the sin of murder. I feel like his wife probably cheated on him at some point or something. Well, his ex. wait, because uh, oh he my even God. went so far as to state on the record during the trial, and I am quoting idiomatic British here, so don't at me. The cunt itself is a murder mechanism. It's just a queer cup to cultivate syphilis in. Mark my words. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Okay, I have to ask just to make sure. That's not bullshit, is it? Oh, it's bullshit. Yeah. Oh, oh, damn. damn. I, wanted, I wanted to give you uh, at so least good. one layup here uh, was, where I could. Uh, I was, was so good. hoping it was real, though. I was like, uh, oh, it's so beautiful. Uh, it's it's foster awful. syphilis. <laughs> Brilliant. Bloody brilliant. Granted, nothing was said at the trial about her husband's mistress or the five children that she had borne him during their time together either. He was a busy man. That arsenic didn't uh, slow down his uh, libido at all. He was uh, helping to spread the cotton in more ways than one. Now I'm wondering what's what's in Viagra there, a little, (laughs) like a grain of arsenic there, you know? (laughs) Arsenic and old lace, strangely enough. But in any event, the summing up was flawed in other ways, of course. For example, the judge introduced material that was not produced during the trial when he was doing the sentencing and read accounts of what witnesses had said from fucking newspaper clippings of the evidence because his own notes were in such a poor state. So Mr. (laughs) Fitzjames Stevens was a fuck up of royal proportions and thus... Florence was able to finally escape after 15 long years. She was released from prison and returned to the United States. For a few years, she made a living giving lectures about her dreadful experience before eventually fading into obscurity. She was never allowed to see her children again. Uh, She was to die on the 23rd of October of 1941, penniless and living in a squalid uh, apartment in Gaylordsville, Connecticut. And there's a delightful township for you. And known. It was just at the end. It was just Florence and the machine. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Uh, She was known locally as the cat lady. And a few of her neighbors knew of her colorful past. She's buried on the grounds of South Kent School, by the way. Was she really known as the cat lady? She was known as the cat lady. Yes, indeed. Inspiration of the Simpsons character. If only. 
Exactly. One of my favorite characters. Yeah. Not shocking. (laughs) Uh, Something we can all aspire to. Uh, And driving a school bus, no less. Uh, No. In any event, with that content established, we can now return to the actual subject of the show, The Ripper Diary. And we'll address the tone and content of the text. For over 100 years, scholars wondered why the Ripper murders had begun suddenly in August of 1888 with the murder of Polly Nichols, and then stopped just as abruptly in November of that same year with the murder of Mary Kelly. The Maybrook Diary, if authentic, provided us an answer. He was poisoned to death. If James Maybrick were, in fact, Jack the Ripper, his death in 1889 would certainly explain the cessation of the killing spree. The diary itself, at 9,000 words, is a handwritten confession to bloody murder, duly signed and dated May the 3rd, 1889, with the epitaph, I give my name that all know of me, so history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born. Yours truly. Jack the Ripper. <gasps> Title drop. <laughs> the roll text credits. itself. Uh, yeah, I'd like to roll credits. The text itself describes the slaughter of innocent women in gruesome detail, including some facts which, in theory, could only have been known by the police or the perpetrator at the time. While the writer never self-identifies as Maybrick, the names of his brothers and children are significantly peppered through the piece, as well as myriad nods to Maybrick's personal circumstances, including, and I note this personally myself, frequent allusions to his medicine. Oh. So right. once he takes his medicine, things will be all right, and he'll be able to have the strength. Just him cracking open a can of spinach and glug, glug, glug. And <laughs> is that, is the reference to the medicine true? Yes, okay. that's true. Constant. So through this, the passages that I read, he yeah. alludes to was like, uh, if I just get more medicine tonight, I'll be able to start and get the whole thing summed up. And so, yes, there's constant drops of him having his medicine, and that's what's giving him his power. Okay, because I'm like, this is like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde-like looking thing. So I had well, to, I had to call know, it out. Got to get a little liquid courage in you, which <laughs> entails arsenic, apparently. But uh, the arsenic. author... The author further justifies his actions by asserting that he had caught his wife with a lover in the seedy Whitechapel district of London, expressing his vexation by only referring to her as the bitch or the whore throughout the work. Her name is never utilized, go figure. So, with all of that said, if the diary is to imply that infidelity triggered a fit of anger, which led our dear Cotton and friend, Maybrick, to stalk the streets of Whitechapel, mutilating and murdering women in pursuit of revenge on all women of loose morals as a coping mechanism. It adheres to the Michael Clark approach of beating a dead horse with a dead horse. That. It is also somewhat tone deaf to the fact that Maybrick himself was a devout philanderer, but of course when murder's in play, a little hypocrisy is the least of our concerns as an audience. So... The text also attempts to further the association of Maybrick as the killer by extensively detailing the deaths of the canonical five Ripper victims, i.e. those unanimously agreed upon to have been killed by Leather Apron, as he was known contemporaneously to the murders, uh, due to similarities in the crime scenes and the mutilations of the bodies. 
There are other individuals who are suspected of being Ripper murders as well, but it's all kind of loose conjecture, and it's just because there were murders taking place, which copycat killers at the time would have made a lot of sense if you just didn't feel like uh, paying the bang tail that evening. You just, you know, offer and, and move on to your other business and just, you know, lay it at the feet of Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. While Maybrick was never a suspect during his life, this alleged diary focused an enormous amount of scrutiny on him after its discovery in 1992. Many experts analyzed both the diary and the life of James Maybrick subsequently. Among the investigators were skeptic Joe Nickel and document expert Kenneth W. Rendell. Now, here you are, Doc. In Rendell's analysis, he was struck that the handwriting style seemed more 20th century than Victorian. He also noted factual contradictions and handwriting inconsistencies. The actual book itself in which the diary written was from the Victorian era, but such volumes are, of course, available in antique shops for ones who might be going about to try to track them down. Mm -hmm. Nearly 20 pages at the beginning of the volume have also been removed, suggesting that it may have been used for some other purpose before being tapped to become the Maybrick Diary. Uh Ripper expert Martin Fido found many anachronisms in the text, and Scotland Yard determined that the handwriting had been altered to add Victorian flourishes to it. More problematic is that there were inaccuracies in the accounts of the murders that seemed to have been taken from newspaper accounts at the time. For example, Philip Sudgeon says of the murder of Mary Kelly, We are told the various body parts of... No, we are told the various parts of her body were strewn, quote unquote, all over the room and that her severed breasts were placed on the bedside table and that the killer took the key of the room away with him. None of those statements are true. They were simply things that were reported in newspapers at the time, often attempting to sensationalize what was already a vigorously gory scene. He didn't have the benefit of Google and being able to do a bit of deep dive research. Indeed, the joys of going to the library in 1992. Uh, John Douglas and Mark Olshaker reject James Maybrook as a Ripper candidate based on his personality and history as well. This is their quote. Even more to the point, how does a 50-year-old man with a family, children, and no sociopathy suddenly blossom into a disorganized serial killer? He can't and doesn't. Anyone who thinks the situation through enough to decide that he wants to kill prostitutes and then get back at his wife, but must do so on trips to another city, where he will then hide out, stalk women of the night, rip them up, and then return to his own world and home, would not exactly be disorganized and certainly would not be unnoticed. No one plans that carefully and then goes into such a frenzy of sexual pathology. Reasonable. Yeah, I agree. I'd say, yeah. So, tests carried out on the ink used in the diary produced contradictory findings. The first test, using thin layer chromatography, TLC, revealed the ink contained no iron and was based on the synthetic dye called nigrosine, patented and commercially available in 1867 and in general use in writing inks by the 1870s. The second TLC test found nothing in the ink inconsistent with the date of 1888 and that the ink contained iron and sodium but no nigrosine. The third TLC test found nothing inconsistent with the Victorian period. So essentially, we have got it's going on again, off again, with saying, yes, this could be Victorian. No, this isn't Victorian. Yes, this is Victorian, but... 
And now a fourth TLC test was attempted, but couldn't be carried out. Uh, infrared and ultraviolet light examinations were also conducted, an examination for indented handwritten impressions using the electrostatic detection apparatus, and Ooh. ink tests using a thin-layer chromatographic analysis, and an ion migration test were also conducted. Several tests were carried out to find whether the ink contained chloroacetamide, uh, which was a preservative, in an effort to, to definitively date the ink. According to one source, chloroacetamide was introduced into the Merck Index in 1857, but not used commercially in ink until 1972. Whoa. a bit of a gap there. In 1995, Dr. Earl Morris of the Dow Chemical Company, bless them, stated that the chloroacetamide has been found in preparations as early as 1857. So it's not outside their own possibility. A fourth test, this time using gas chromatography, found chloracetamide present at 6.5 parts per million. But the water does remember. Very true. I have. I, I seem to have put you both to sleep. No, uh, I, I, do this I, I was honestly I have... just trying to think of a way to, like, with the water remembering and stuff. I was trying to tie it somehow to waterfalls for TLC, but... Oh, yeah, well, you can't chase those. It sounds yeah. like you were trying to chase a joke. No, my eyes also have been like, also looks like Michael really... has something in his left eye, yes. <laughs> my eyes are just incredible. <laughs> like, there, the Lisa. last five minutes, like, they've been incredibly dry to where, like, it hurts to keep them open. Just don't it... burn your house down there, Andre Risen. Uh, there. There's all the TLC jokes that were okay. fit to put all into right, one single episode. Thank you, yeah, because I didn't get those. <laughs> but a fifth TLC test found traces oh. of chlorocetamide. And this was attributed to contamination from the control tests. <laughs> so, as they said, vexing, confusing, and ultimately torturous. Yes. The test was carried out again, and no chloracetamide was found. Finally, in January of 1995, as if to confound all of us further, Michael Barrett swore in two separate affidavits that he was, in fact, the author of the manuscript, written by mm. my wife, Ann Barrett, at my dictation, which is known as Jack the Ripper's Diary. Adding to the confusion, however, was that Barrett's solicitor, or lawyer for those of us who are over here across the pond, subsequently oh. repudiated the affidavit, so saying that the affidavit was <laughs> false. And then Barrett <laughs> withdrew the repudiation. So... <laughs> He said he lied about it twice, and then his lawyer said, no, he did not lie about this, and then he said, you're right, I didn't lie about this. <laughs> Apparently, he has waffled back and forth again another couple subsequent times. I did not see that in this documentary uh, documentation, but uh, some videos that I watched claim that he has flip-flopped like five times, where he said, like, yeah, I did lie. No, I didn't lie. It's all true. Yeah, yes, I, I lied. lied. It's fake news. <laughs> so, it, this is... No more or less confounding than you would have expected. However, on the back of this alone, it'll come as no surprise that the book was largely condemned as a hoax. However, the publisher of The Diary of Jack the Ripper, the book that came out later on, and now owner of The Diary, Robert Smith. No, not Robert Smith of the Cure, Robert Smith, but a gentleman named Robert Smith. He's not ready to throw in the cloak just yet. By working with research undertaken by Keith Skinner a crime historian and author, a one Bruce Robinson, in addition, apparently, uh, Smith got the lead that, uh, 
Oh my God. All right. We're going to start this over again. Wait, that, let me, let me hop in. Was atrocious. the repudiations bullshit where he said, no, nope. I, okay, that's, that's, that's legit. all true. So by working with research undertaken by Keith Skinner, a crime historian and author, and one Bruce Robinson, Smith got the lead he was after in a time that sheets of a fabrication company, Portis and Rhodes Limited, stick with me because this is no less convoluted than the other nonsense. Ugh. Revealed they had employed three electricians to work in James Maybrick's former domicile on the very same day that Michael Barrett contacted London literary agent Doreen Montgomery with a question. I've got Jack the Ripper's diary. Would you be interested in seeing it? So. We'll put that in another way. So on the day that all of a sudden this manuscript is birthed into the world, there were three individuals who were electricians doing work in Maybrick's old home who apparently discovered a book under the floorboards. Ah. So I'll be getting to this. According to Smith, on the, 9th, on the 9th of March, 1992, three electrical contractors discovered a diary concealed under the floorboards of Maybrick's old bedroom located in the Merseyside suburb of Eggberth. One of the electricians, it's an egg birth, it's not a live birth. Uh, one of the electricians <laughs> passed the diary on to a colleague of his, Eddie Lyons, who in turn then presented the book to a drinking acquaintance, a larger-than-life character who fancied himself a writer, as he'd written articles for celebratory magazines and had puzzles published in a kid's television mag called Look In. The individual who fancied himself a writer, happened to go by the name of Mike Barrett. So, the claim is, is that this may have actually been found by electricians who just happened to know a steel worker who was uh, jonesing to get himself into print again. And so it might be factual. So who you, knows? Oh, so you said the, the Robert hell? Smith fellow now owns the book. So like, did Correct. Michael so, sell the rights to it or something? Yes. So essentially when they published the book in 95, that was, uh, they apparently turned over the diary itself and then the publishing rights to get whatever lump sum they got for the publication. So yes, uh, Mike Barrett does not own it. And that's true. Not bullshit. That is true. Okay. Yes. Some people, including Robert Smith, the present owner of the diary and original publisher of the associated book by Shirley Harrison, insist it is genuine. They argue that scientific dating methods, as I detailed here, have established that the book and ink used to write in it are both from the 19th century. That the symptoms of arsenic addiction specifically claimed to be described accurately in the book are known to very few persons and that some details of the murders provided in it were known only to police and the Ripper himself prior to the book's publication. Now, again, we pointed out this stuff was all largely pulled from newspaper clippings at the time, so it's not necessarily saying they were only known to the police now. But, who knows? Uh, one of the original crime scene photographs also shows the initials FM written on a wall behind the victim's body in what appears to be blood. These initials, they claim, are referring to Florence Maybrick. Oh, man. And these claims are, of course, dismissed by the majority of experts. Is the FM in blood true? It is indeed. So, as a further aside... Oh, God. Let's muddy the water a little more before we get out of this heavy water. Six years after the publication of the diary, and now divorced from Mike, Anne Barrett 
Nay Graham, co-authored her own book under her maiden name entitled The Last Victim, The Extraordinary Life of Florence Maybrick, The Wife of Jack the Ripper, with a foreword by one Keith Skinner, who just so happened to be doing those investigations for Robert Smith. Hmm. Mm, Interesting. Mm. Anne's research also leads her to believe that she's actually related to Florence Maybrick. Of course. Which could be seen as a little more than coincidence, since it was the family heirloom handed down that allowed them to publish in the first place. I also love that it is uh, co-authored, which means she uh probably had nothing at all to do with it. Like, do we just need her name on it, you know, and to tie it? Yeah. And she's just like, sure, I'll cash the check. Why not? Hey, she's divorced. She needs a little more cream on top of this anyway. And uh, this is a feminist so she's issue, go back I find. Jacket. <laughs> Particularly with the Florence Maybrick. We got to get to Valentine's meat juice one way or the other. Amen. So, with the provenance of the diary potentially reestablished, Smith then published a 2017 book entitled 25 Years of the Diary of Jack the Ripper, The True Facts. <sighs> And it asserts that James Maybrick is back in the picture as the prime Ripper suspect. And there he sits, rather uncomfortably, according to author Bruce Robinson, who, uh, Bruce Robinson, I should also mention, has a theory of his own, uh, and he claims that James' brother, Michael Maybrick, the head of the family, Mm -hmm. was actually the one who perpetrated the Ripper killings, and then (laughs) wrote the diary himself to try to pin the crimes on his brother, and uh, he was the one who actually killed his brother as well. And the fact that it was blamed on his brother's, you know, youthful wife is just, you know, par for the course and, you know, a little lucky bit of circumstance for him. Uh, also funny, further side note, Michael Maybrick is a celebrated singer and songwriter, author of a beloved tune entitled The Holy City, which was the most popular song of the 19th century. And it sold a million copies in sheet music at the time. Whoa, that is a uh, lot. He is also wrote a... Yes, that is true. He also wrote a song called They All Love Jack. <gasps> Going back to Jack in it. So I'm telling you, people can get lost in this stuff and then use it to corroborate or put forth whatever little, you know, concepts they have. So you, you can just... You can get lost in this stuff. This is one of the reasons we were talking about this today, because this is endlessly fascinating for me in particular. Now, are you ready? Because we're still not done. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) This is a roller coaster. I know. I'm telling you. This is why it's like, if I'm going to go out on anything, this is an interesting topic for me to to wrap something up on for a bit. But the final mind-boggling piece of this puzzle comes in the form of... Of a gentleman's pocket watch. In June of nineteen ninety, Christopher Walken in the watch, and <laughs> <laughs> I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass for a hundred and fifty years. Uh, give me to watch. In June of ninety three, a pocket watch which was made by William Verity of Rothwell near Leeds. I love these details that are just completely superfluous. Like I don't care where the goddamn watch was made. Um. It was in 1847 or 1848, apparently. It was presented by Albert Johnson of Wallasey. The watch has an inscription of J. Maybrick scratched on the inside cover, along with the words, I am Jack. 
as well as the initials of the five canonical Ripper victims. Hmm. The watch was subsequently examined in 1993 by Dr. Stephen Turgus of the Corrosion and Protection Center at the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology. Because that's not long-winded at all. What did Turgus have to say? Turgus explored it with an electron microscope. I will have Ooh, you know. Ooh, okay. A little... And he... Really? Yes. Why? Turgus gave it the goose. Well, I will tell you why. Here is his quote. On the basis of the evidence, especially the order in which the markings were made, it's clear that the engravings predate the vast majority of superficial surface scratch marks. The wear apparent on the engravings, evidenced by the rounded edges and the markings and polishing out in places, would indicate a substantial age. Whilst there is no evidence which would indicate a recent, last few years, origin, it must be emphasized that there are no features observed which conclusively prove the age of the engravings. They could have been produced recently, and deliberately artificially aged by polishing, but this would have been a complex, multi-stage process. Many of the features are only resolved by the scanning electron microscope, not being readily apparent in optical microscopy. Microscopy. Microscopy! (laughs) Not readily apparent in optical microscopy. And so, if they were of recent origin the engraver would have had to have been aware of the potential evidence available from this technique, indicating a considerable skill and scientific awareness. Bit like Jack himself. Indeed. He jacked himself hard. Oh my god, this joke. (laughs) Um, But that is to be said. Now, there's an awful lot of money to be made by the person who finally cracks the case of Jack the Ripper. If they can substantively prove that this is the individual who committed these crimes, obviously that's a decent paycheck. So it's not shocking to me that someone seeing some of this research and figuring, hey, they've got a pretty reasonable suspect here, I'll just pin this on and let's try to corroborate or substantiate those claims, would go to these lengths, but at the same time, it's a little bizarre. Well, but you're also saying this field. watch bit is taking place in 83, correct? Correct. Which is so right at the same is... time as the journal anyhow, right? So it's not... Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And prior to the publication of the book. So this has got to be either a very involved plot, uh, which is as convoluted as all the other claims have been, or just interesting coincidence. Did the watch actually have the initials of the victims? Yes, it did. Did it have the J Maverick or whatever? J Maverick. Yep. Jack. Did it take place in 93 before the publication of the book? Yes. All of these things are true. Damn. I've taken so many stabs and I've only hit like the, I guess two. I think we've hit two of the four, but still. Well, uh, you ain't no Jack. I don't know Jack. Well, you ain't no Jack. You You, should hit the You do know Jack occasionally. All right. So enough. Self-inflicted wounds here, pardon the pun. In 1994, the watch was taken to the Interface Analysis Center at Bristol University and studied by Dr. Robert Wilde using an electron microscope and auger electron spec... What you gonna do uh, when Robert runs wild on you? I am I am having me some <laughs> severe Michael moments here this evening. Auger Oof. electron spectroscopy. Spectroscopy, yes. Yes. Dr. Wilde... Dr. Wilde found Ooh. that 
provided the watch. No, we're not doing that. Doctor's gone wild. Uh, Provided the watch has remained in a normal environment, it would seem likely that the engravings were at least several tens of years of age. In my opinion, it's unlikely that anyone would have sufficient expertise to implant aged brass particles into the base of the engravings. Aged brass particles? Well, because they found aged brass particles in the engravings. So, it would be very difficult to do something that was over tens of years of age in the 90s, apparently. Well, be, that would take a lot of planning, too, to, like, layer in, like, old brass just to make sure mm-hmm. in case anybody goes digging inside this. So, well done, yeah. Insumation. No, I'm not at insumation. <laughs> yes, I am no, at insumation. Insumation. Oh, my God. Man, so this in any is so event, jacked up. Thank you. Uh, it's like jackfruit. <laughs> insumation. It is fitting. That a single theory in a sea of supposition should so readily encapsulate the insanity, hyperbole, and absurdity of the Ripper lore in a single impossible-to-swallow package. Yes, that was intentional. (laughs) The concept of what most believe to be a completely fabricated text, both asserting a string of new Ripper suspects and igniting controversy over a century after the crimes were committed, bespeaks the public's fascination with the atrocities and the macabre in general. As Dr. William Gull famously stated in Alan Moore's marvelous graphic novel, From Hell... One day, men will look back and say that I gave birth to the 20th century. And in many ways, the most abhorrent and reprehensible ways amongst them, Jack the Ripper most certainly did. And that, my friends, is what I have for you this evening on the subject of Jack the Ripper's Diary. Fantastic. Well done, my friend. You survived. Thank you. There's a lot of material to parse, gentlemen, I gotta tell you. There's not a lot on the diary itself, but I also, since we were talking about After Dark stuff, I have the text of the entire diary that is available to me through a website. So I can give you a sample of what that actually sounds like, or we can even do that here, if you all are inclined. Mm. So, uh... I can give you the first paragraph. Yes, do a teaser for them to, you know, join us for an After Dark where we yes. look so it over. Yes, you can see just how brilliantly this is written. <laughs> uh, what they have in store for them, they would stop this instant. But do <laughs> I desire that? My answer is no. They will suffer just as I. I will see to that. Received a letter from Michael, perhaps I will visit him. We'll have to come to some sort of decision regards the children. I long for peace of mind, but I sincerely believe that that will not come until I have sought my revenge on the whore and the whore-master. Yes. The... Well... So it's Michael? I thought it was Michael that did the killing. No, 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 no. no, no. James Maybrick. Yes. Separate theory. As I say, uh, yes, this is someone else's derivative. And the claim is that Michael would then write this ah, and I then gotcha. include his own right. name in to kind of throw Cast people off the scent. Because yeah. he's speaking to himself as opposed to someone else. So, yeah, it's not very well written, as you can tell. Uh, if I thought that they would stop, they would not. And so I thought. What they have in store for them, they would stop this instant. But do I desire that? 
My answer is no. <laughs> no, keep going. You're fine. Pass Sometimes first. some people say it don't be like it is, but it do. It do be do be do. <sighs> so there you are. <laughs> oh my god that's gonna be a fun read i'm excited <laughs> as usual my hands are cold my heart i do believe is colder still oh and my poetic. hands have spaghetti oh my god knees I'm are like, weak it... now that said if you've read the um the from hell letter or any of the other things like they're also not great but still you just you can't throw pros with this anyway do you have guesses? You did get two of the lies. Do you have some thoughts on what the other two may have been? I know you were taking some pretty sincere stabs as we were going. Pardon the pun. He was he was carrying the team because I I had and have continue to have nothing. Yeah, I've taken all the stabs that I think were valid at the time. Okay. Uh, wait, was there old brass? clippings or shaves yes then yeah we were we were beyond the point of having lies by the time we got to any of that discussion so yeah all of that stuff was true um let's see yeah no i i tap okay well uh you did of course get the uh the early lie that uh they did not start utilizing fingerprints until 1892 based on Scotland Yard having to endure the fact that they couldn't identify the Ripper. Um, They did not start until 1892, but as we indicated, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, which still, again, very interesting. Yeah, I like that. That would be cool to read a history on that. Most definitely. And it's just fascinating to me that, again, that is one of the primary means of identifying criminals and creating databases and things like this, and that did not come into play until nearly the 20th century boggles the mind Mm -hmm. now uh i do love that we're gonna fall into our old standby here of uh we get off on a sidebar and and conversation and we're right in the pocket of something Ah. that uh, i interjected so maybrick absolutely has no affiliation whatsoever with hh holmes Ah, they were never linked the two of them did not brush up against one another as far as i could tell and even furthermore the actual sting to this is going to be the murder house wasn't established until 1886 so in 1871 uh, Mr. Herman Mudgett was still in college, actually, and uh, tampering with people's bodies, which is why I threw in the cadaver selling line, because that's what he was doing at the time. He was selling bodies out of uh, the morgue that he was working in. I can't believe moment. I fell victim to it because I've been the one that's like, oh, wait, we've stopped. We've talked about something. Let me catch it. And yet I yep. was like, right. I was like, oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> and you you went with me hook, line and sinker. And we had a great conversation because of it. So we're not going to say that. So, yes, there's no Love 28 it. bales of cotton to help establish the murder motel. Uh, that did not happen. Uh, they were in America at the same time, though. So something to be said. Well, for well that, done. But- Coincidence. Thank you. Uh, the third lie was. And I still, I thought I was being so outlandish with this that there was no way this would have gotten by. 
Lie number three is that uh, our good friend Florence attempted to get the nurse to avert her vision by taking her husband's genitals out and playing with them a bit. I thought for certain Valentine's meat juice would have been such a topic of conversation that you would have just completely bitten in on that being the lie, and I could have done my usual slip and slide and get it. And in truth, uh, we were having so much fun making fun of the meat juice that I didn't have to worry about the lie being noticed because we didn't even talk about it. It. it's just <laughs> perfectly fine that she would just you know take the twig and bits out and just fiddle around for a minute and walk I mean, away without saying anything so hooray i mean i did make the joke that the nurse was just like go on yep uh-huh light a cigarette yeah, it. Oh, yep. doc yeah yep yep so uh that was line number three that did not happen she simply just went into the bathroom came back in put the bottle next to the bed and walked out so uh, that is what occurred there. And then, of course, lie number four, you got, which was the quote to our deranged judge saying that uh, the cunt is a murder mechanism, which I showed that to Melissa as I was writing. And she's like, you wrote that. You came up with that. You made that up. I was like, yes, I did. She's like, you did that just to say the C word, didn't you? I was like, well, Maybe. you know, it's one of my favorite idiomatic British, uh, <laughs> idiomatic British terms. Yes, yes, I do. And yeah, anyway, so there you are. Those were the four lies out of all of the other random nonsense happening, which again, there were so many bends in the road here that trying to come up with anything that didn't seem just completely out of left field or galling was a, a bit of a difficult task, which I love. It's always fun when those things are so outlandish that you can just get lost. In and it. your lies were very well done, like very funny, perfectly in the pocket. Well, thank yeah, you. so I, I enjoyed it. Or out of the pocket in case of genitals, but you know, and what are you going to do? For each one, pretty much stopped, had a nice little joke or conversation about it, and yet still mm -hmm. didn't catch them all. So um, they were yeah. very nicely done. They weren't just uh, cheap lies with low hanging fruit that just like, you know, one of those, uh, you know, <laughs> chemical compound word things that you were throwing out there in mm, various yes. parts. I was not throwing in number lies or asking chat GPT to tell me who Jack the Ripper was. So at least there's that. So that is it, my friends. Thank you. That was a long one. I knew it was going to be, but in order to get that entire story in and explain it adequately, that was, uh, it was necessary. I yeah. loved it. But it was worth it. All right. Yeah. Hooray. I'll be yeah. right well. about this episode in my diary. <laughs> quite delightful indeed and and milking the meat uh just like valentine himself so that is the true saint valentine's day massacre we'll talk about that later on but thank you all for being here as per usual it is immensely appreciated we love having you every single wonderful week and if you enjoyed the show at all please like subscribe rate and review we would love to hear from you there is a link in the show notes below that will take you to all of our socials Relevant or irrelevant they may be. Uh, you can also check out all of our material winging your way on YouTube every fantastic Friday with it disinformed after dark. And, of course, discussions about possible fan fiction of Jack the Ripper based on the diary, which would be oh so much fun. Ugh, yikes. Uh, probably get flagged very quickly, I can assure you. But, but it'll uh, be so, so, can... so worth it. So, so worth it. Flag on the field. For Valentine's meat juice. Red card. Go to the bench. You're out of here. Oh, footballing. So, ooh, terrible. It's a 
Awful thought. Fetishists amongst us, untie. So, I think that is going to officially wrap this thing up like a body on the street of Whitechapel. Uh, and so, for the Disinformed Podcast this week, I'm Shane. I'm Doc. And I'm Michael. And I hope you all have a non-caloric blast. And zippity zoop, we're out of here.